something for nothing the rush fan cast steve and jerry with you jerry how's it hanging um to the left okay uh, you would know I, I, there's no wrong answers here <laughs> no wrong answers here you can find us on twitter at rush fancast instagram we are the rush cast and email jerry at the at gmail.com the emails keep pouring in we appreciate it and today jerry we've got rush royalty on the rush fancast we'll announce who shortly but i'm excited about this oh yeah i'm excited too you can find us on your favorite podcast app but as always the bass intro was done today by our good pal, Lex. Thanks, Lex. So I've got a Twitter poll for you, Jer, before we get started. Oh, yeah, yeah, go ahead. If you recall, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about moving pictures. Yep. For four episodes, I might add. We really milked that one. We did. It was quite the odyssey. Anyway, on the first episode, when we talked about Tom Sawyer, I asked you if you ever get tired of hearing Tom Sawyer. Yes. And you said, no. Nope. Great song. So I decided to ask the Twitter Rush fans if they ever get tired of hearing Tom Sawyer. So here were the choices. No, never, sometimes, or yes, absolutely. Wow. Three choices. Three choices. What do you say? Right down the middle there. Um, I'm going to say no. No was the clear winner. Yes. No, never. 65%. Wow. So that means 35% of Rush fans, at least the ones we polled, the 402 that we polled, sometimes at least are tired of hearing Tom Sawyer. What do you think? Well, how many people are completely tired of hearing it? 4%. So 4% of 402 votes. Do the math, Jer. I can't. <laughs> <laughs> I, I won't be put on the 10% spot. 10% would be 40, right? <laughs> so it's about 18 people or so okay. out of 402. I mean, I have, I have nothing to say if, you, if you're tired of the song. Okay, it's fine. I'm not, but... I'm surprised. That people are tired of it? Yeah, people are tired of it. Well, one man's mead is another man's poison, right? Very true, very true. So you got an email for us, Jer, before we get started here. I, I do, and it is also about Tom Sawyer. Oh, nice. Perfect. It is from our good friend Steve... He wrote in, he said, I'm absolutely loving your podcast and could listen and discuss Rush endlessly. They've been the center of my musical life since 1981, and I thirst to learn and find myself musing about every aspect of their music, lyrics, and shows. I've been fortunate enough to see them 40 times, starting with the Grace Under Pressure Tour, and would often travel for the opening nights of the tours. Who wants those pesky spoilers anyway? Oh, wow, cool. He goes to see the first show just so he wouldn't learn later on what songs they were going to play. That's a great idea. I wish we thought of that. Yeah, yeah, we should have thought of that. Uh, you discussed the subject of Tom Sawyer in episode 42 and the possibility that the lyrics may be reflective of Neil himself. This is an excerpt from the Rush Backstage Club, and it verifies that conclusion. Really? So, yeah, so this is a quote. In the December 1985 Rush Backstage Club newsletter, drummer and lyricist Neil Peart said... Tom Sawyer was a collaboration between myself and Pai Dubois, an excellent lyricist who wrote the lyrics for Max Webster. His original lyrics were kind of a portrait of a modern-day rebel, a free-spirited individualist striding through the world wide-eyed and purposeful. I added the themes of reconciling the boy and the man in myself and the difference between what people are and what others perceive them to be, namely me, I guess. Wow. 
So there you go. I feel vindicated. Yeah. Vindicated. Vindication. Vindication. I love vindication. Thanks, Steve, for that email. That's great. Yeah. Very cool. So today, Jer, on the Rush Fancast, we have got a great, great guest. An unofficial fourth member of the band, really. He's worked with Rush for over 40 years as tour manager, road manager, and most recently, and for a long time, lighting director, Howard Ungerleader. Thanks so much for joining us on the Rush Fancast. You're welcome. It's a pleasure to be here, speaking to everybody out there in Rush world. <laughs> so, uh, Howard, we usually ask our guests how they became Rush fans, but uh, I, th- I think we know how you became a Rush fan. So why don't you start by telling us how your relationship with Rush began and how you got started doing what you do? It's pretty interesting because um, I'm originally from New York and New Jersey area, and um, I had started, you know, I'm a musician. I was playing in my own band, and I went into New York to uh, see if I can get the recording contracts because I was young and naive, and um, it didn't work. Instead, I ran into a gentleman named Sean LaRoche. I sort of pressured him into uh, telling me that I was an idiot. <laughs> 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 but, uh, I, uh, I waited till the secretary w- went out for her lunch break because I had been trying to see him for weeks and he wouldn't see me. And the only reason why I knew him is because when I was in my first year of university, I was in um, Monmouth College down in uh, Long Branch. And um, before I got thrown out of the university, I uh, was on the head of the student union for bringing in concerts. And I ran into Sean LaRoche because he worked with a lot of different bands like The Who and you know, a lot of the bands that were represented by agents. So when I went into his office to ask him if he could help my band, he basically said that, no, you're not going to make it. You know nothing. The fact that you're here, I have to give you a little bit of credit. You got through the barrier, but uh, you need to learn about the business before, you know, you could understand how hard it is. He says, there's like 10,000 bands out there. Out of those bands, one will make it. It won't be yours. I can tell you that right now. I don't wow. even to, he said, I don't even have to listen to it. Wow. Just from how naive you are. So basically, you know, he put me in my place and he gave me a bunch of names and he goes, here, go around, you know, New York and uh, knock on some doors and maybe one of these guys can help you. You could use my name and uh, just let them know that I'm, I'm sending you around. And I eventually I stumbled across a company. It was called Action Talent. It had just changed its name to American Talent International. And it, the building was on 888 7th Avenue, right across from Carnegie Hall in Manhattan. I went to work for them. I went up there. I met, you know, uh, the owners. There were three owners. And uh, one of them said, you know, I'll hire you to deliver coffees and do the mail. And if you, you know, you could come in here next Monday, be in here at, you know, 9 a.m. And if you're late, you're fired. Wow. From that point on, I sort of worked my way up to eventually becoming a booking agent and then traveling around with a lot of the bands, making sure they got paid. And I was doing acts like Fleetwood Mac, Rod Stewart. I was uh, touring around with Blue Oyster Cult and um, bands that most people wouldn't even have heard of, you know, Tom McRooster, um, Savoy Brown and Deep Purple. So I was out on tour from, I would say 1971 until I actually hooked up with Rush when they sent me, Rush had signed a deal with uh, ATI and Mercury Records 
in Chicago. And at the time, uh, Cliff Bernstein, who's one of the owners now of Q Prime, um, he was the A&R, you know, a guy that signed Rush after Rush was played on WMMS by Donna Helper in Cleveland and exploded. So when that contract was signed, they signed a, a deal with the agent and the agency wanted me to go up there and represent them so the band would enjoy their uh, what they do for them. And out of there, I just decided, you know, I'd rather stay with them and not go back to the agency. And I became their tour manager and went on the road and trying to show them the ropes because I had toured around with a lot of other bands prior to Rush. And uh, I guess the rest was history. So over the years, um, I was their tour manager, tour accountant, maitre d', lighting designer, you know, to the point where after 20, 25 years, it was a bit much. Um, so I sort of just wanted to do lighting. And I spoke to Getty a lot about it. And he said, listen, let someone else come up in the ranks, and which happened. And uh, you sit back and do the lighting and enjoy what you do. And, you know, you paid your dues and now it's someone else's turn. So I guess Liam came up to do it. And uh, I just sat back and I did the creative, which I enjoy the most. And that's how I sort of fit into Rush. So the early days were great and everything went really, really well through the years. And um, also I had the opportunity uh, over with downtime to do bands like Van Halen and Queensryche and Tesla. And uh, it was fantastic. And I got to meet a lot of people. And uh, here I am today. Talking to us. <laughs> so in the early days, I'm sure, when did you start doing the lighting? Not only, but when, when was lighting part of your, your job description? It was right off the top because, oh. you know, I was, I was familiar with it. It was a hobby of mine. And it was right off the top and uh, no one else was there to do it. So I just took the responsibility on top of the tour management um, to do that. How important would you say lighting is to a rock show in general? How important is that? Oh, I mean, it's always important. In the early days, there wasn't much. There wasn't much offered. Usually played an auditorium that had their own lights, usually consisted of these x-ray strip bars that were overhead into what's called a piano board, a theatrical lighting console. It's a bunch of dimmers. They have click handles on them, and you just decide what you want to do, click the handles, and throw the master switch. It was like something out of Frankenstein. And uh, there were a lot of those, um, they called piano boards. And that's how I started, you know, calling spotlights on a headset and using the piano boards. And at times, we played buildings like the Michigan Palace, in Detroit, and it was a huge piano board where I needed a few of the stagehands to turn lock-in handles. So when I would hit the cue, it would I had everything in place. That was like in the in the early days before beautiful automated consoles, right? Very difficult. It was good exercise too. <laughs> so how did things change when uh, you know the automated consoles came out and uh, computers? Did it get easier or in some ways harder? No, no, it was very, it was digital. It was all digitally done in the beginning. Eventually it became intelligent, you know, consoles with intelligent lighting fixtures. And, uh, you know, the days of theatrical lighting, you know, the lighting that existed from 40s, 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, um, most of the books written on it, on lighting itself, were from theatrical lighting because that's all there was. 
when Verilite came out and with the automated lighting fixture using dichroic filters, which are colored prism, prismatic glass, that was able, you were able to mix and match color automatically with the hit of a dial. It revolutionized the industry. I was the last person to probably use the automated lighting fixtures because I wanted to exhaust everything out of theatrical lighting before I moved on to automation. But I did move on to automation around 84, 85, and uh, went full-blown with it after I wrapped my head around what it was. We went full-blown with it um, continually, on and on. It's great. And we've seen video of you working, Howard. It's almost like you're playing an instrument back there behind the lighting board. Do you feel that lighting is an instrument in itself? For me, for me it was because I, I'm a big fan of lighting choreography. So when I would design a show, I would take the lyrics, I would blend whatever the lyrics were talking about because, you know, Rush weren't writing songs like, Hey baby, you know, let's hang out. (laughs) (laughs) uh, You know, and I like to listen to what they were discussing in the lyrics and um, translate it in my own way via lighting choreography. I did that a lot with, um, and yeah, I, I, being a musician, I could feel their music while I was creating the show and I was able to get into it. So how I designed my show was I, although it was all run by computer, I had an analog uh, feel to it because I had an expansion wing off to the side of the main console where I would actually run the whole show off the expansion wing. And what that did was gave me the ability to hit cues manually on top of the computerized cues that I was running down automatically. So there was a vertebrae that I would create to each and every song with hundreds of other cues that I can interject manually at a moment's notice that would do all sorts of different things that would help me sync up my timing with what the band was doing, which was, which was pretty unusual way to run a show because a lot of people just sit there and just hit cues. But I'm hitting cues and augmenting the cues that are out there with a complete manual override. And you would take that, you would take what's happening on stage into account to do that, right? Yeah, absolutely. And it took some intense programming. And I had some great programmers that I brought on board with, you know, to assist me in what I was doing. Like Tim Grievous and Matt Drewsbick and Keith Hoagland and uh, Andy O'Toole. And uh, there was a, a bunch of people that would, uh, when I wanted to do something, I, I used to program my own shows and then it got to the point where I would have a thought process going and I wanted to move forward. And when, it, when, when that horrible glitch would happen, as you found out earlier with your audio. <laughs> so that happens to us every week. Well, then you're used to it then. So it was so distracting to me that I would lose my train of thought in the programming and it would just, I'd have to go back to square one, which was, you know, not great. So I decided, you know, I'll bring a, I'll bring a separate programmer on board, tell them exactly what I want to see, let them do it. So if a glitch happened, I wouldn't lose my train of thought. I could still think without having to worry about fixing the issue. So they would fix the issue. So when I was running a rush show, I'd always have an assistant to my left who would sit behind the main console as I was running the show off this expansion console. So if something went wrong during the show, they were able to fix it while I was running the show. So there would be, it would be seamless. It would be no reason to stop. Unless, of course, the computer crashed and everything did come to it, which happened every now and then. 
And then you could just go manual then at that point? Well, it's computerized and manual together. It's a, it's a blend of both because I create the manual cues within the computer. If you could wrap your head around that a little. <laughs> like shortcut keys. Well, there's like, you have a bunch of keys and you know what they do. Each song that is played is a whole new set of keys. So although the keys are the same on the board and they look the same, you hit pages of songs. So you have your main backbone of your verse, bridge, chorus. And then off to the side, you have all these keys that will augment the verse, bridge, and chorus in many different ways. Some will have gobo changes at certain speeds. Someone, some will just black out what's ever happening, put up something else until you lift your hand off the button and it'll put it back to where it was, continue on with the programs. Kind of complex. So, Howard, can you explain how the presentation of a show is planned? Does the band simply present a set list to you, or is it a collaboration? Do you have any input at all? It's always a collaboration. With, with Rush, it was very, very creative, because in the early days, it would be myself and Getty, and we'd bring in a video um, you know, a company and uh, a creative director, and we'd all sit around and would brainstorm the concept of the album, what they were trying to accomplish. And Ged would take charge of the videos quite a bit. And he knew what he wanted to see visually. And the artists that came from the video companies and the directors, they would take the bull by the horns and they would bring to life a storyboard which contained what we were discussing. And I throw my two cents in and Getty would put his ideas down there. And, you know, knowing what I wanted to do lighting wise, and not quite knowing what the set was going to be. We knew the songs that were, were being decided on. There may have been 40 different songs they wanted to play, but they would only pick maybe 30 of those 40. So I never knew what it would be until the very end, but it would be sort of condensed, and they would start rehearsing before they would actually go into a venue. So I would always have 10 days in a venue. And those 10 days were grueling because the band would come in, they, would, uh, they wanted to get acclimatized to the hours that they would be performing. So they would come in as if they were going to do a sound check at around four in the afternoon. They would have their dinner and then they would sit around like they were waiting for the show to start at 7.30. They would start playing and they would do a three-hour set and they would do their intermission. And they did this so they would get used to playing in that time slot because when they were off for a year or a year and a half in between tours, they weren't in that time slot and they needed to get used to it. So that would be the great way for them to get used to it. And when they were finished, usually around 11 o'clock, they would go back to their hotels to do whatever and sleep. And that's when I would start. And I would go from 11 at night until sunrise the next morning creating. And I was trying to get three songs a night done. And some nights I would only get one song because it was a big production number. And other nights I could get three songs. So by the end of the 10 days, I would have the whole show created, not necessarily completely memorized with the thousands of cues that were created on the sideboard. But over time, they would come in the next day. I would run the cues that I had programmed the night before with my, with my team and run the videos. And uh, it was kind of interesting. You know, um, the conceptual design, the structure of the rigs, um, I always would change those on every tour to keep it, you know, fresh and new. I'd always use new lighting fixtures, new things that were coming out. 
um, lights were changing rapidly and, you know, the ability of what they could do were phenomenal at times. And I'd always bring in what I thought would do the trick for the songs and uh, sort of progressed. But later on, the video directors turned into Getty's brother, Alan, because um, when I first met Alan, he was a child, right? And then he grew up. And when he grew up, he became a video producer. And his buddy, Dale Heslip, which was a, uh, he's a director here in Toronto, and a Juno Award-winning director. And the two of them would now sit in the meetings with Get and myself. And it was like second generation coming up. It was kind of cool. You know, I was it's going to ask you, you, you hit upon something that I was going to talk about, about keeping things fresh from tour to tour. How was it keeping songs fresh, the songs that they played all the time, your Tom Sawyer, Spirit of Radio? How do you kind of go back to the beginning and create something new for those songs? Well, you know, you, you sit out in a field and you think about, you listen to the song and you think about things. And I look at nature. And I look at how the sun reacts with, you know, what's happening in the evening, in, in the afternoon, uh, magic hour when it gets golden and, you know, the, the light looks so different. And architecture of buildings and how the light plays off of the architecture. All these things uh, assist me in creating a show. Like one, one of the tours, I, I designed the video walls as wind chimes because I was sitting out up north on a lake one day and these wind chimes were over my head and I was staring at them thinking, wow, it would be so great to have a video screen that looked like wind chimes. And I did do that. And um, sometimes I wanted to create a ring around each one of the guys. So I would have circular trusses over their heads. And sometimes I want moving objects to come in and out. And on a few tours, I even put video screens on the moving objects just to create motion and it was very challenging for the video companies to come up with what we needed to do to make that work. So I was like, the band would always push the envelope with music and I'd always push the envelope with lighting. And I like to keep it that way because um, to me, it would, it, it's interesting. And I would look at the show as if I was a, a fan in the audience and what I wanted to see. Cause I remember when I was young and I went to see bands like Pink Floyd, that were performance art bands that would have a phenomenal show and sort of freak me out, especially when I was using um, non-alcoholic substances. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it, it, it sort of enhanced the experience and it gave me the drive to want to create things. And, you know, I, I don't know, it all comes from here. I have this electricity and it's really funny when I stare out at the stage while I'm running a show and I see you know, I'm seeing just the stage, but I'm in such a zone that I, if someone who I knew came up and stood in front of me and was waving at me, I really, truly wouldn't see them. And they would get all offended, like, hey, didn't you see me? And I'm like, it's hard to explain it because they don't believe it. But no, I don't see you because I'm in a little zone. I'm not even thinking of, I may be looking straight ahead, but that's not what I'm seeing. I'm seeing completely something completely different. And what's really physically in front of me sometimes, if you can understand that. It's not the drugs. <laughs> Are there any songs, Howard, you, you feel like you elevated by the work you did? I think that I, that's unfair. It's a lot of songs, I think, <laughs> that I sort of helped elevate. 
I have to say help elevate because I'm a firm believer in the lights have to enhance the song. Although, you know, there, there are people that think that it was a bit much, but um, I try to keep it, you know, interesting and not overwhelm the band. I want things to blend well. You know, I want everything to look beautiful. And uh, I care. I care about the shows I create. And you, you've seen the shows, so you know. It's a lot of work. It's many hours of intense uh, thought process and, and memory process. Because I remember asking my assistant when I had to go to the washroom one day during a show. <laughs> <laughs> I said, can you just run the rest of this song for me until I get back? And they're like, no, don't do this. We don't want to. It's like, come on, just do this. And they would reluctantly, but they were, it's kind of freaky for them because of all the manual buttons I had going. Did you ever get to sit back and watch a show just as a fan and not running the lights or running any part of the show? Not a rush show, but other shows. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was never able to actually unless I'm watching it on video. That's the, really the only time. I think that's the only time the band ever saw themselves. The band had very little idea of what I was doing lighting-wise until they actually started editing um, videos of the shows. And I remember one time, Ged came up to me and he went, listen, don't tell the other guys I said this, but show looks amazing. And then I'd never realized what was going on, which was kind of funny, but you know, understandable. They're on stage looking out at an audience. They have no clue. All they see is flashing. They don't see the substance. Even when a video company comes to, um, to film Rush, they're not going to film the show. They're not going to pull back. You know, Ged's brother did because, you know, we had conversations about it. But most video uh, companies would come in and do close-ups, and they would never uh, see the concept of the show or, or the lighting that would, that would happen around certain parts of certain songs, which I believe become memorable because when you listen to something on the radio, you would click in and associate what the show looked like to what you hear on the radio. And that's what I was a big fan of, like creating something that would happen. Like in the records, I made it rain on stage with lighting while the video was showing a storm with rain coming in. It was sort of a three-dimensional rain. And, you know, there's just something that you won't see with a close-up or you won't see with a still shot. Yeah, well, I, uh, Stephen, I can attest... Uh things do look great from the audience. <laughs> I'm sure. You know, um, Steve and I were talking yesterday about some of our favorite songs that Rush has played and how the lighting really, um, you know, did them justice. I'm thinking of specifically like uh, Red Sector A. I really love the, the lasers that would come across. Can you talk about those lasers? Because lasers, you know, it's almost like a, like a rock trope, right? People use lasers. But people didn't use lasers like that. Well, you know, there's a, there, there's a technology. I still use it. And we're a firm believer in it because um, I like to use old school technology blended with the new school um, engineering. But years ago when we were using lasers, um, they were water-cooled systems. They were huge. They were six to eight feet long. They required 60 PSI of water flow to cool the glass tubes that were in there. And they would have krypton and argon gas and inside the tubes. It was very much very scientific. You would need a boatload of permits to do this. And there were projectors. And the projectors had uh, all sorts of different cut glass. They had splitters where you could take one beam of laser and split it into four. 
there were racetracks that would take out a bunch of different beams and color them and send them out as four beams at a time. And there were a lot of uh, optical tricks that you can use through a laser projector. Then you had the laser scanner, which all the systems have these days. It's a scanner built into a box and that's all it is. So we had on our systems, a projection table that had all this cut glass and lumias and all sorts of effects that you no longer see in a lot of the laser shows. And in addition to that, we had scanners. So we had the best of both worlds. And now our smaller systems that we build, we still have that. And we could do beam bounces. No one is using mirrors anymore. Nobody wants to climb into a truss to create what's called a beam matrix, which gives you a three-dimensional look with beams in the air. The other thing is sometimes when you do beams with a scanner, because that's how they're doing it now, because the scanner works the same principle as a cigarette in a dark room, you're moving light at a high rate of speed. So you'll get a flicker. So when you use a scanner to do beams, you'll get this beam pulse, unless you're using high-speed scanners and you know you try to minimize that pulse. But when you use cut glass, the beams are solid. They're sitting out there rock solid. There's no pulse because they're solid beams. But you are placing mirrors all around the truss and on the floor to refract this light, to create these amazing geometrical uh, cages of light, which I can attest to say no one, except maybe a handful of companies, will do. I know we do. There's companies out there, YLS does it. You know, we're just a different mindset. So in Red Sector A, I use what was called retinal fatigue, where you uh, take two to four colors in succession back and forth, and it moves your iris in your eye. It opens and closes it, which creates a movement. A good example of the two colors would be like um, an aquamarine and magenta, right? Back and forth. It would, it would make your eye open and close. So it would create movement. Well, that in succession with the lasers and the, and the uh, video that was happening would create this sort of crazy imaginary movement that would happen. It would actually look, make the band look like they're shifting in position because the song was quite heavy, you know? It's about concentration camp. So it's, you know, kind of serious and you wanted to create that sort of mindset, like a, a mind shift of some sort because it was just so intense, right? So how much, Howard, does the venue itself change what you're doing? Did you have to alter your work based on the venue sometimes or did that not matter? Well, so, sometimes you do, but... For the most part, I design my shows. You know, I, I look at, through my advanced work, I look at all the venues we're playing. I see what the largest stage is, what the smallest stage is, what the lowest ceiling is, what the highest ceilings are. And this way I could design to a specific footprint. And in my design, I make um, concessions for augmenting the different uh, venues that we play. So if I have to take something away I know what it will be. It won't be, you know, detrimental to anything that I'm doing in the show. Not that you would know. <laughs> are there? Are, <laughs> right. What would you say are the, the best venues you've worked in and which are the most challenging? Outdoor venues are the most challenging because you can't predict what the weather will be. And I need atmosphere to hang so that the lighting looks amazing. And uh, it, it gives it a different texture. Also with the wind conditions, 
you can't predict what will happen. So, you know, there are a lot of great outdoor venues, but if a wind kicks up, it's just going to look sterile. You're not going to get what it looks like indoors. Even in, in some indoor venues, the HVAC is like the uh, air conditioning is so intense that uh, it'll, it'll just be almost impossible to create atmosphere. I have to go around every day and meet with the building engineers to see if they can minimize the AC flow in the building or to shut off extractor fans in different areas so that it would keep the, uh, I don't have to use a ton of smoke. I just could layer it in and let it sit there. Otherwise, you're just endlessly pumping smoke out into the air, which could be just, you know, distracting. I mean, I'm not a big fan in letting that happen, but sometimes I have no choice. So some of the best venues that I enjoy playing, I mean, I'd have to say it's kind of a crazy venue, but Nassau Coliseum in New York was one of my favorites because they had great spotlights, great spot operators. The building held smoke nicely, and it was amazing. And, um, you know, I mean, Madison Square Garden was good. It's just that it had a strange load in, but it had nothing to do with the show. And um, I think that, you know, the L.A. Forum is one of my favorites. Um, you know, there's, I have a lot of favorites. There's so many great venues in, in the U.S. Now they're all empty and becoming shelters. <laughs> it's just a horrible time period right now. Yeah. This year didn't start off well. No, it didn't. I hope it ends better than it started. Yeah. Can we talk about uh, the R40 tour for a couple of minutes? Yeah, go right ahead. Well, the presentation of that show was phenomenal from start to finish. Just the, the way everything started, I, you know, the, everything from the set list to the, the video and the lights and the whole thing. But I would like to talk specifically about the end of the show and the lighting toward the end of the show. Oh, yeah. Because... We, we were, you know, in the beginning, it was lights, lights, lights. But then as we're getting toward the end, it's just, you know, there's that chair, the wooden chair with the, with the speaker on it. And just like overhead lights. And then the basketball kind of uh, thing in the back. And, and then the disco ball. Is there a certain challenge in doing a minimalist kind of approach? Oh, absolutely. I mean, like we're looking at re- reverse, you know, um, we were going from present to the past and it was coming from present day to when they first started in, in high school gymnasiums. And to be honest, I was not there for the high school gymnasium. I, I was there for some shows that looked like that in the beginning when they first started because there was no money and, you know, we were very restrictive in what we could do, but we took it from where they left off and brought them right back to the beginning, you know, to, playing a high school gym. And to do that is, uh, it was quite a challenge to come back in time. The great thing was that I had designed every rig in their history so that when it was easy for me to go back in time, because I knew what I was doing mm-hmm. from present to the past, but to sit there at the end and just re- just recall how it was in the beginning was kind of wild. I enjoyed that. I guess that's where the institutional memory comes in handy, right? Oh, yeah, definitely. I'm sure you were able to add more to it. what's left, what's left right now. (laughs) (laughs) Howard, Rush did one tour without you, the Roll the Bones tour. How did that happen, and was it weird not being part of it since you're part of the family? I designed it, right? So what had happened was I had designed the show, and a few years before, um, the band said to everyone, listen, we're not going to tour for two years. You need to go out and, you know, do other things because we have to, uh, 
we have to take some time off. And I went ahead and uh, I did a deal with Q Prime to do Queensryche and uh, Tesla. So I did Tesla and then we rolled into the Operation Mindcrime slash Empire Tour, which was a huge success. And I had spoken with Rush before this had happened and said, listen, you know, I have to make some money here. I just can't, you know, not do it. You're off for two years and I have to keep busy because I'm not a rock star. And um, I uh, gave him an opportunity to think about it. And then they came back and said, no, no, go ahead, you know, do what you have to do. And I went ahead. And then Queensryche had this huge silent lucidity hit. They had Michael Kamen produce it. It was a big number one hit. And the tour went from being a short eight-month tour to 16 months. And it overlapped Roll the Bones, which prevented me from going out and doing Roll the Bones. So I had to find someone else to run the lights for Roll the Bones. I designed the show, found someone else to run it. And um, that's what happened there. Now, do you have certain songs that you love the lighting that you've created for? over others. What are some of those? Animate was one of my favorite songs. I loved doing that. I thought that was, that was great. I loved doing Camera Eye. That was awesome. Um, you know, uh, the whole Cygnus X1 was amazing. I could go on and on and just, there's, there were so many, you know. How about this question, Howard? Are there any songs that Rush never played live that you wish you could have done the lighting for? Well, it was Jacob's Ladder, but they, you know, they only did it a few times. But I love that. And um, Losing It was a great song that they did on the last tour. There aren't really many songs that I wish that they would play that I would do because they have so many in their catalog and they play so well. So, I mean, I really enjoyed, you know, the lights come from here. It comes from here. I mean, that's where, that's how I design. And that's how I continue to design. And what was it about those songs that you, um, liked lighting so much was it just your connection to the song and what you were able to bring to the experience absolutely and you know the the actual intensity of it all and to deliver it i mean even limelight was one of my favorite songs i loved it la villa strangiato was one of incredible production number that i always enjoyed doing i mean it's just it's there's something you look forward to you know as i'm sure the band looked forward to playing certain songs I look forward to enhancing those songs. And uh, that's, that was what I do. And my enjoyment and appreciation for, for those guys, they were such, and still are amazing musicians. Um, I'm very fortunate to have had that span of time to create these shows. Now, from the outside, it seems like working with Rush is like working with family. First of all, is that true? And, and how rare is that, working with other bands? It's extremely rare. There are a few, there are a few bands out there that are like that. Um, Rush were incredible because they were like brothers. So, and it was a family. It was a very tight-knit family, which, you know, you don't get that. It doesn't really exist. I know it was, uh, there were other bands, like, like Billy Joel and his lighting designer, Steve Cohen. They've been around forever. And, uh, you know, he's sort of family with them. And uh, with, with Billy, he's, he's like that. And, um, you know, there's Grateful Dead had a family that used to be around with them, you know. There's not a lot of bands that I can, I know. I think Tom Petty had a pretty tight-knit family as well. But there are bands out there that, you know, 
great people. I had the opportunity on working with David Bowie, who was an amazing artist and a gentleman. You know, really great to work with him. You know, as an audience member for a lot of shows, I have always appreciated the, the parts of the show where the lights were specifically on the audience. How do you take that into account? Depends what the band is. When the band say concert hall, we light it up, <laughs> right? It's pretty simple. Yeah. And um, if, it's, if, if it's something where they're talking about a sunrise, where they, you know, you could want to bring up some, some lighting. And on the audience lighting, you know, on the flip side of that, you know what the most intense, most powerful cue ever is? It's no. black, black, darkness, blackout. That is the most dramatic and, you know, intense cue you could ever do. There was nothing more exciting than blacking out a stage and bringing in a spotlight right after that onto one location. It's just, it's like changing the channel on a television. I wanted to ask you one more non-Rush related question. I, I read that you did the lighting for the Hysteria Tour for Def Leppard. Yes, I designed that. I happened to see that show, and it was in the round. Yes. How difficult was that to light a stage in the round in the center of a venue like that? It was pretty. It was pretty uh, challenging. You know, it was it was more challenging putting the lasers under the stage and figuring out how we would do that through trap doors, and um, but that was a great tour, and yeah, it was the, it was their first time. It was in the round. I think I have the album right behind me somewhere on the wall. And, uh, you know, it's, um, it, it was good. You know, Robert Scoville was out there and, uh, when I first went out there and he did a great job. And I think with the audio was more difficult than the lighting because the lighting people can see from all angles. And when I would design, I'd always walk around a venue when I'm creating something. So I see what it looks like from all sides. So what have you been up to the, the past five years? What are you doing now, Howard, since Russia's retired? I have my company, a production design international, and we've been doing a lot of work with tool and doing the laser work for tool and Foo fighters and kid rock. And, um, I do a lot of work with, uh, Hewlett Packard and the infinity marketing group out of Los Angeles. And uh, I do a lot of corporate events and special effects. I design for, you know, anyone who would like an amazing show can feel free to contact me because I, I do freelance design work as well. So, you know, I consult with a lot of people on a lot of different shows. So I've been keeping busy and I've had this company for 26 years and I hope to keep, have it after this COVID-19 thing, you know, is over, you know, and um, we'll see, we'll see. But I'm still here. I'm still designing as much as I can. And barring that, there's a nice hot dog stand somewhere <laughs> out in the middle of the street to sell hot dogs eventually. So if Getty Lee has a solo tour in his future, is Howard part of that? Well, you probably know more than I do because I haven't heard anything about it. <laughs> I, I saw him a few weeks ago. He didn't say anything. Oh, he had the bass guitar, the, the bass guitar, the, the big book of bass tour that he did. But no. I haven't heard anything about a solo tour. And, you know, it's up to him. If he wants me there, I'm there. Uh, in the meanwhile, you could just tell us what corner you're going to put the hot dog stand on and we'll come by. Yeah, I have to figure that one out and get a permit first. And I have to clean it up. It's been a, long, it's been a while. <laughs> he was a staple with Rush for 40 years. Howard Ungerleader, thanks so much for joining us on the Rush Fancast. We really appreciate your time. Oh, well, you know, I appreciate you guys uh, taking the time out. And I'm anytime you want. 
I'm here to share. And, uh, you know, eventually my book will be coming out and you'll be able to read a little bit more about what's going on. Oh, we'd love to have you back after the book comes out. All right. I'll be there. Thank you so much. All right. Thanks. So, Jer Howard Ungerleader, how great was that? It was. You know, you don't really think about how much goes into a show, I guess. At least I, I guess I never did. Uh, and that's a good sign, too, because if you notice things like that, then maybe it's, it's done badly. But since everything was always so perfect, you didn't really notice. Yeah. You know, these things were taking place. Yeah. And he was just as much a perfectionist as Neil, Getty, and Alex were. Yeah. And you could really tell that he loves what he does, which I, which is definitely part of that. Yeah. And when I called him an unofficial fourth member of the band, I really meant that because you see videos of him. He was, he was playing an instrument back there. He wasn't just running the lights. He was playing the lights. Right. It's crazy. Yeah. It's amazing. Really is. The focus. And to think he never actually really saw Russian concert, I guess. <laughs> I know that's correct. Well, that's why I asked him that. Cause I, I figured that would be his answer. Yeah. Right. I mean, how, how can you really pay attention to the show when you're that involved in it? And he was just as involved as the three members of the band were. Yeah. Very cool. Very cool. So anything else on Howard before we wrap things up, Jer? No, I'm just so glad he agreed to come on. I really do hope he comes back when his book comes out. I'd lo love to talk to him about that. That'd be cool. Yeah, we're definitely not worthy. No, we're not. You can find us on Twitter at RushFanCast, Instagram, we are the RushCast, and you can email Jerry, let him know what you think of our interview with Howard at therushcast at gmail.com. And Jer, I hope you have a quote for me. I sure do, Steve. Of course you do. You'd never let me down. It's from Prime Mover. Oh, cool. I set the wheels in motion, turn up all the machines, activate the programs, and run behind the scenes. Very cool. Very appropriate for Howard. Very appropriate. I'll pick it just for him. Nice. Take it easy. Bye.